All right. Well, hey, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and grab those. If you need a Bible, want a Bible, there's some on the chairs surrounding you. We're going back to the book of Acts. We're going to settle back into our, our series that we've been in, We Are the Church. If you're using the Bibles there from the chairs, you're going to go to page 1240, uh, where you're looking for Acts chapter 9 is where we're going to be this morning, Acts chapter 9. And, uh, you know, the, the first, one of the first phrases you saw in that video is, we are not a club. We are not a club. And this morning, we're going to enter into a book, the book of Acts at a spot where we're revisiting a person that's been introduced before in the book of Acts, but we're, we're going to see him again. And this is a guy that you would not let into your club. This is a guy that if, if the church was a club and membership uh, was, was determined based on how you behaved before you got there, what your background was like, this is not a guy that you would let in. And listen, this morning, some of you, that's your story too. That this morning, as we go through uh, these verses, you're going to see bits and pieces of your own story in that. And, and my hope and what I've prayed that is for some of you this morning, that, that it would stir you up and to just worship and thank God that he didn't discriminate against you because of what was in your background or who you were. Instead, he extended his mercy to you. And then others of you this morning, maybe you're, you're going to see this morning that this guy... This guy, you would think that God would never bring a person into his family like this guy. And maybe this morning, that's where you're thinking. You're thinking, God can't bring me into his family. God doesn't want someone like me in his family. I would tarnish God's reputation if God brought me into his family. My prayer has been for you this morning that God would show you that even you, yes, even you are not beyond God's mercy. And so this morning, my hope is that all of us would see bits and pieces of our story in the story that we're going to see of this man's life. We're not a club. And the last phrase of that video is a quote from Jesus from the Gospel Matthew chapter 16 where Jesus looks at Peter, one of his followers in the eye, and he says, I will build my church. I, Jesus says, will build my church. And this morning, you're going to see what it looks like for Jesus to build his church. So Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 19, the first part, which is what that little A means. Now, that's not a typo. It didn't accidentally slip in there. It just means we're stopping at the, the first part of chapter 19. And, and just a note on that, because sometimes I like to try to give you some help in understanding some things about your Bible. Sometimes when the verses were written, you know the verses were not original. The numbers next to your, to your verses, the chapter numbers, those were not written by Luke. Those came along in the 1300s, 1400s, 1500s, that time frame as scribes were making copies and translating and they were putting in numbers, chapter breaks, verses to help them break things up. Sometimes, sometimes they fall in unfortunate spots. It changes nothing about your Bible, nothing about the truth of your Bible. It just means sometimes when we're, we're studying, it doesn't make sense to, to go all the way through a verse or all the way through a chapter. Sometimes it makes sense to stop because there's a shift and the verses just didn't get put in the right spot. Maybe that's because they were right on a chariot and they, they, they got hit a bump when they were right in the next one. I don't, I don't know. Just know that that's what I'm, I'm doing what I'm doing there. All right, so here we go. Acts chapter 9, verse 1. Now, a couple weeks ago when we were in Acts, we met a guy named Saul, chapter 6, chapter 7. 
Maybe you don't remember Saul, so let's just do a refresher real quick. The gospel has been spreading through Jerusalem and started to spread past the surrounding areas. God has empowered his followers by the Spirit to carry out his gospel and to spread his word. He said in Acts chapter 1 to his followers, you will be my witnesses throughout Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and then to all the parts of the earth. And for the early parts of the the book of Acts, we've seen it in Jerusalem. And we've started to see it spread as we hit chapter 8 and this guy named Philip who he went to this group of people called the Samaritans, these half-breeds, half-Jew, half-Gentile. And we saw the the gospel spreading there. We saw Philip take the gospel to an Ethiopian eunuch who was then going to be taking that message to Africa with him. And, And in the midst of that, we saw right before all that happened, there was another man named Stephen. Maybe you remember Stephen. Stephen was a man who was full of the Spirit, and Stephen was a man who was uh, talking to some Jewish people, and he was in some discussion with them, and it was bothering him some of the things they said. You remember Stephen? And you remember that it bothered them so much, some of the things that he was saying, the message that he was proclaiming from Jesus, that they all picked up stones to stone him. And you know the process of being stoned to death is, no, we're not talking like pebbles. We're talking about whatever you can get your hand on, biggest rocks that you can get and much you can launch at this guy and you're just launching them at him until he is dead by result because of the stones just heating, hitting him in the head and pelting him. And they did that to him. And right at the end of that, that scene, there was this one little phrase and they laid their cloaks down at the feet of a young man named Saul. Saul a leader of the persecution. Saul, a man who was feared by Christians because this man had developed a reputation for going after followers of Jesus, for pulling them out of their homes and putting them in prison. Saul, a man who was this good religious Jew. He was a Pharisee. He was a religious leader among the Jewish people. He's a teacher among the Jewish people. And he was so zealous for for God and following God that he saw these people as a threat. And so he was going after them. Saul. Meanwhile, Saul, still breathing out threats to murder the Lord's disciples, went to the high priest and requested letters from him to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any who belonged to the way, either men or women, he could bring them as prisoners to Jerusalem. Saul, still going about his business, still going about uh, trying to get followers of Jesus pulled out and put in prison. So much so that now he's starting to go north to Damascus. He's starting to spread past where the Jews typically are, and he's going to where the Christians are, where the followers of Jesus are. And so in order to do that, he wants a letter from the high priest in Jerusalem, this guy who's going to have a lot of authority among synagogues. A synagogue would be a place where Jewish people would gather to worship in their towns. And he's going to Damascus, and he gets a letter from the high priest that gives gives him authorization when he gets to the synagogue in Damascus that if he finds any members of the way, that's what they called them, members of the way. You see, Christians weren't called Christians at this point. In fact, Christians weren't called Christians until later on, and they weren't called Christians by themselves. That's not the name that followers of Jesus gave themselves. Do you realize that? Christians is the name that the, uh, the opposers of Jesus' followers gave them. The critics of Jesus' followers gave them. And it was meant to be derogatory. You're a Christian. You're a little Christ. You're like a little Christ follower. And it kind of picked up from there. But you know, that's not the name they gave themselves. In fact, what they were called early on was the way. They, they were members of the way. Because followers of Jesus are not part of a club. They're part of a movement. 
They're part of a movement that's called the way and they're following teaching that is uh, set out a certain way of living. They're following the teaching of Jesus and Paul, Saul, is going to take care of them. We go on in verse 3. As he was going along, approaching Damascus, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? So he said, who are you, Lord? He replied, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But stand up and enter the city, and you will be told what you must do. Now, if you were an early follower of Jesus, and you were reading Luke's account of Acts, at this point, you're surprised. You didn't see this coming. Now, now you still don't know how this is going to work out. Maybe inside of you leaps up a little bit of joy. Finally, God's doing something about this man, Saul. Finally, Jesus is going to do something to this man who's persecuting all his followers. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Finally, Saul's going to get what's coming to him. You see, he's on his way and Jesus just reveals himself to, to Saul, interrupts his going while he was on his way to accomplish his own purpose, his own plans. That's when Jesus steps in and interrupts him. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul, at this point, he can't see because the light is so, is so blind. He's, he's been blinded by the light. Let's all just take a moment now and sing it. Blinded by the light, revved up like a deuce another. Anybody? A uh, bunch of sinners. Okay. All right, so we got that out of our system. Okay, so he's, he can't see who it is, and so he says, well, who are you? Like, who, if you're asking me why you're persecuting me, tell me who you are, and I'll tell you why I'm persecuting you. I don't know who you are. I can't see. And then comes the answer that you know Saul never expected. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Now, now wait a minute. Is Saul persecuting Jesus? Is Jesus still on the earth and Saul is pursuing this man? Is, is Saul persecuting Jesus? He's going after members of the way. He's going after people who are following Jesus. And yet Jesus reveals himself to Paul, stops him in his tracks and says, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. He doesn't say, I am Jesus, the man whose followers you are persecuting. He says, no, I'm Jesus whom you are persecuting. You know what that tells us? That tells us that the followers of Jesus are so closely connected to Jesus that to persecute someone who's following Jesus is equivalent to persecuting Jesus. There's such a close connection. You know, when we, when we trust in Christ, we are baptized by the Spirit, and that is that joining process where, where God supernaturally takes us and connects us to Christ so that we can be described as being so close in Him that it's, it's okay to say we are in Christ. That he is our head and we are his body. There's such a close connection between the followers of Christ and Jesus himself that Jesus says, you persecute my followers, you persecute me. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Now, if you've ever experienced pressure for following Jesus, if you've ever experienced any kind of persecution for following Jesus, if you've ever been ridiculed for following Jesus, if your story is, when I trusted in Christ, my family disowned me, and now they take pot shots at me at Thanksgiving dinner or Christmas dinner, if, if you've ever had moments like this, this should be an encouragement to you. Because it's not personal. 
It's not about you so much as it is about Jesus. And if they're doing that to you, they're doing that to Jesus. And guess what? He sees. He knows. He hears. And in this case, as you're reading through the book of Acts, if you're, if you're one of Luke's early readers, you don't know what's happening next. All you know is, finally, Jesus is stepping in to do something about this. And you're leaping with joy. It, it, Jesus says, you're the, you're, it's, it's me, Jesus, who you're persecuting. And then he gives him some instructions. But stand up and enter the city, and you will be told what you must do. Just keep on going to the city, Saul. And I'm going to tell you what you need to do. Well, Jesus, why didn't you just strike him dead right there? Why, did you, why didn't you just handle it? Why, why didn't you do something about it now? Do you have something? Are you going to drag this out? Is this going to be like a it, death is too good for you type of scenario? Is this going to be where you're going to drag things out and he's going to have to suffer now because of what, what he's done to your followers? Is this what's going to happen? Verse 7. Now the men who were traveling with him stood there speechless because they heard the voice but saw no one. So Saul got up from the ground, but although his eyes were open, he could see nothing. Leading him by the hand, his companions brought him into Damascus for three days. He could not see, and he neither ate nor drank anything. So the result of Paul seeing Christ is now he can't see. He's been blinded. He's got scales or something like that over his eyes, and now he has to be led as a man who is blind into the city. Let's keep going. I want you to, you don't have to turn here. I want to pull it up here. But I want to show you something. Now, this Saul also goes by another name. Paul. And, and you'll see in the, the book of Acts that the second half of Acts, he's going to be known more as Paul than he is Saul. They, it's not uncommon to have two names. This same Saul later wrote some letters to churches. And here's something he said in 2 Corinthians, a letter to this church. He talks about people who have been blinded to the gospel, people who, who couldn't see who Christ was. He says, but even if our gospel is veiled, it's hidden, it's, it's, it's not visible, it's not understood by, by people, even if it is veiled, he said, it is veiled only to those who are perishing among whom the God of this age has blinded the minds of those who do not believe so they would not see the light of the glorious gospel of Christ who is the image of God. We'll jump to verse 6 there. For God who said let light shine out of darkness is the one who shined in our hearts to give us the light of the glorious knowledge of God in the face of Christ. Now listen here. Saul's life is being changed. Saul's life on that road is being changed. All of a sudden, for Saul, he was on his way following his own purpose, his own plans. He was set out to do what he was wanting to do. He was going about his everyday business. He was going to continue to persecute Christians. That's when Jesus revealed himself to Saul. That's when someone who was once veiled in seeing the gospel all of a sudden had that veil removed. You see, he was on his way to kill Christians. Now, sometimes we like to talk about, about the way that God works in people's lives and, and we say, man, they're really warming up to the gospel. Man, I, I, I think I see some walls coming down is what, what we'll say sometimes. Or sometimes, I, I say this sometimes, man, if, if God would just get a hold of them, they sure would make a good Christian because they're already living so well, right? We say things like that and that, that indicates that, that maybe there's things that indicate that God may be working. Paul, Saul had none of that. 
None of that. I'm about to throw a wrench in your understanding of how God works. Because sometimes we think that if we just keep praying, then God's going to break down some barriers. And over time, that over time, it's going to wear them down. And over time, they're going to understand the gospel. And you know what? Sometimes God does that. But not with Saul. And not with a lot of people. Saul was not a seeker. He wasn't seeking truth about world religions and trying to find out which one is the most uh, uh, reasonable to believe in. He wasn't seeking. Saul was thoroughly convinced of his way of life, his understanding of God and his understanding of the Old Testament scriptures and what he was doing. He was thoroughly convinced he was right. You ever been there? Thoroughly convinced that what you believe is right, that the way that you're living is right, and that the people who are trying to tell you otherwise, they're the ones who are blinded, not you. That they're the ones who who haven't been enlightened yet, but you have. Have you ever been so thoroughly convinced that nobody can get through to you, and you're going to continue to press on that path that you're on regardless because you are that convinced? That's all. And it's in the midst of that that Jesus reveals himself, interrupts his life, removes the veil that Paul will later talk about being removed. You see, because every person is born with this veil, with these blinders. We don't see Jesus for who he is. We don't naturally come to that understanding of who Jesus is. It's not like when we hear the gospel that we think, well, that's a great idea. I'm so glad God did that. We don't come to a conclusion like that on our own. In fact, Paul would write in his first letters to the Corinthians this, chapter 1. For the message about the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. You see, there's two people there. He says, those who are perishing, that is, everyone is born in that condition. Everyone is born in a state where we are already impacted by sin. We looked at this last week for, for Easter, that we are guilty because our representative Adam chose to rebel against God. And ever since then, every person has inherited the guilt of Adam's sin. And even if we didn't inherit his guilt, we are guilty all on our own because of sin in our life. And to hear that we need a Savior when we are living in sin, when we are blinded to the gospel, to hear that we need a Savior is foolishness. Why do I need somebody to come and step in for me? I've got this. I can do this on my own. And furthermore, why would I then trust in a Savior who died? Like, what good was that? What kind of plan is that, God, to send a man to come and live, and he's supposed to be this all-powerful Savior? In fact, people claim that he's God, and then he dies? That's absolute foolishness. That's, That's what Paul says. He says, to people who are perishing, it makes absolutely no sense. Why do I need a Savior And if I needed help from God, why would I take help from a man who died? Because after all, I'm not going to believe he raised from the dead because that's impossible. It's foolishness. That's the way we view the gospel if we don't have God's help in understanding it. That's the way Paul understood things as he was pursuing these people of the way. Why are they continuing to follow the teachings of Jesus? This Jesus has died. Don't they know that he's done? They, They need to just disperse? See, he didn't believe Jesus raised from the dead. He didn't believe that Jesus was sent from God. But here he's writing to this, this letter to the Corinthians. Let's go on, verse 21. He says, For since in the wisdom of God, the world by its wisdom did not know God. In other words, he says, It was God's wise plan that we would not get to know God by our own means. 
that we can't be wise enough to figure out how to be in a relationship with God. It was part of God's wise plan that that's not how we come into a relationship with God, not on our own means. God was pleased to save those who believe by the foolishness of preaching. Paul says, look, there's a lot of smart people in the world. There's a lot of people who've investigated things and the teachings of other people, and, and they're pursuing those kind of things, but God's plan is not that you enter into a relationship with him because you finally, finally investigated enough and have become convinced in your own mind. That's not how you enter a relationship with God. There's something else that must take place. Belief. And you can't muster that up. You can't just make yourself get to that point where you said, I, I believe now. No, there's something that takes place inside of us. God working on us to understand the reality of who Christ is, to understand the necessity of Christ's death on our behalf, to understand that his resurrection from the dead means we can have new life just like him. That takes God. And so he says, but to those, verse 24, who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. You see, when the gospel is proclaimed, it's proclaimed for everyone. But only some will respond. That's what Paul means when he says, but those who are called. When there are some who hear the gospel, they're going to hear it in a different way than everyone else because it's going to elicit in them a response. And as they hear the gospel, it's going to make sense. They're going to understand their need for Christ as their Savior. They may not be able to figure out all the questions that they've had. Maybe some of those don't get answered, but all of a sudden, to the piercing of their heart, they understand, I need that. Christ died for me. Christ is my Savior. And when you get to that spot, it's because God has helped you get to that spot. It's because God has helped you to understand the foolishness of his gospel. And Paul, as he's, he's writing this, he's writing as a man who's experienced that. You'll never read any of these letters of Paul the same if you keep in the back of your mind his own experience with Christ. Paul was not a seeker. He was not warming up to Christ. Paul had no intention of ever becoming a follower of Christ. Paul may have had people praying for him. We don't know. But there was no indication that God was breaking down walls in Paul's life. While he was going to kill followers of Christ, Jesus interrupted him. Why? Because God can do that. God can do whatever he wants, whenever he wants, however he wants. And this may not be everybody's experience. Now, understand that. What I'm not saying this morning is that this is going to be everyone's experience. Paul's experience is certainly unique. Most of us in here, probably all of us, have not had a moment where the risen Christ has revealed himself visibly in a vision spoken to us like he did to, Christ, to, to, to Saul. But there are elements of Paul's story that are the same for all of us. We were blinded. We were going about our own way. We were pursuing our own desires, our own plan, when God interrupted our lives with the truth of his gospel. And maybe it wasn't the first time you heard it, maybe it was the eighth time you heard it. But for some reason, you can't explain it, that's when it made sense. And now, as you look at the story of Paul, and as you read through some of Paul's letters, that's when you start to look back and say, oh, that's how God was working in my life. I didn't understand how it happened, but now as I look back, now I understand how God saved me. Let's go back to Acts. 
Paul's being led to the city, Acts chapter 9, verse 10. Now there was a disciple in Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he replied, here I am, Lord. Then the Lord told him, get up and go to the street called Straight at Judas' house. Look for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and place his hands on him so that he may see again. Now, just pause for a minute. Put yourself in Ananias' shoes. You're a follower of Christ. You're in Damascus. You've been following Jesus for maybe a couple months, maybe a couple weeks, but you have heard the rumors about this man named Saul. Maybe you've even heard that he's on his way to Damascus. And here you are, and you're, you're going about your day, and maybe you're praying, maybe you're, maybe you're spending time in the Word of God, and you get this vision from God. And in this vision from God, God, just plain as day, says, I want you to go to this specific location, and I want you to ask about this specific man, because he's seen a vision about you, and he's expecting you. How would you feel? You don't know what's happened on that road to Damascus with Saul. You don't know that God has been working in, in, that, in that moment to, to change the course of Saul's life. You don't know that. By the way, side note, do you notice how Luke just tells us God gave him a vision and spoke to him like it's no big deal? I'm going to let you in on a little secret. As I've been studying the book of Acts, I've started to pray that from time to time. God, would you, would you just speak to me in a way that's so real like that? That's just clear. Now, I know in our circles we're not supposed to pray like that. But what, what do I got to lose, right? Either he will or he won't. And if he will, I want to be open to it. It's just plain as day. He was in a vision. God said, here I am. Ananias knew it must be God. Here I am, Lord. It's plain as day. Sometimes I wonder if we don't hear God speaking to us in more, more ways because we're just too busy, just too cluttered in our life, maybe not open to God speaking in certain ways. Just saying. Let's keep going. But Ananias replied in verse 13, Lord, I have heard from many people about this man, how much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to imprison all who call on your name. So he says, Lord, wait a minute. Are you sure about this? I've heard about this man. You want me to go talk to this man? I mean, it's exactly what you and I would say, isn't it? God, did I hear you right? That's when you start to think, maybe, maybe I should stop listening to voices, right? That's when you start to think, I clearly did not hear this right. God, surely you don't mean this man, the one who's been killing the people that follow Jesus and the one who's on his way now with a letter of authority to come after us. Surely you don't mean that man. You've never been in that spot, have you? Where God has asked you to follow him, but following him meant stepping outside of your comfort zone. You've never been there, have you? you you've never been in that spot where following God meant stepping out and taking the gospel to people who you don't really care for. You don't like the type of people they are. You don't like the race of people they are. You don't like the color of their skin. You don't think God should bring those kind of people on your team. You've never been in that spot, have you? You've never been in that spot where, where there's someone in your life who has just been your arch nemesis. Maybe they were the, the school bully. Maybe they're the coworker who you just can't stand. And maybe it's that person. You, you got that person in your mind at this point. I know you do. And you think, man... I hope that person never becomes a follower of Christ. You've never been in that position, have you? Where you think God following you, no, that goes too far. That's Ananias. God, are you sure about this? I mean, it, 
honestly, wouldn't it take the audible voice of God to get you to do this anyway? Like, you're not going to do this just because an impression came into your heart where you're thinking as I'm reading the scriptures, oh, I think I should go to Iraq and meet with the leader of ISIS and see if he would be interested in hearing the gospel that I might want to share with him. And, and you just got that impression. You're not going to do that off of an impression, right? Something like that, that requires such risk, such boldness, doesn't it take God speaking to you audibly? Probably so. And even then, we would probably second guess that. Verse 15, but the Lord said to him, go, because this man is my chosen instrument. Say what? Now, if you're reading this, you're a follower of Christ, and you're reading Luke's early gospel about how things played out, and you've read about Saul, all of a sudden you hear God say, no, no, go. Go because he's my chosen instrument. Would that insult you? God, you, you chose him? Like, I can think of a lot of, a lot of other people, God, who are far better than him you could have chosen. You chose him? The, the guy who killed, God, I've got a grudge against this guy. I want to see this guy mutilated. I want to see this guy get the absolute worst. You chose him? You and I don't get a say in who God saves and who he doesn't. That's not up to us. He is my chosen instrument to carry my name before Gentiles and kings and the people of Israel. You mean, you mean God, that you're going to take Paul, the persecutor, and make him a preacher? No. You mean, God, that you're going to take the worst person in our society, the person who is our arch enemy, and you're going to take him and put him part of your team? You're going to make him part of your family? Go, because he's my chosen instrument to bring and carry my word to the Gentiles, to the Jews, and before kings. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house, placed his hands on Saul and said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you came here has, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he could see again. He got up and was baptized because what do you do after you believe in Christ and you've received the Spirit? You get baptized. And after taking some food, his strength returned. How can God do that? How can God take a person like Saul and interrupt his life when Saul wasn't even looking? At least God should consider the people who were looking for him, right? No, because there are some people who are looking for God who will never find him. And yet God chooses to reveal himself to Saul who had no interest in God. Shouldn't God work differently? Who are we? to determine what God should and should do and how he should work and who he should save. Listen, some of you have been praying for people for a long time that God would get a hold of their heart and that they would trust in the gospel and you've been praying and you see no evidence that God is at work. And maybe you're discouraged at this point. And maybe you've even stopped praying because you think, well, if God was going to do it by now, he would have done it. Saul, young man, let's just say, 20s, 30s, 40s, somewhere in that range. Set in his ways. His career is established. He is set in what he's doing. If you had been praying for Saul and you would have stopped because there's no evidence that he's ever going to change. And yet here, God gets a hold of him just like that and he's changed. 
Don't stop praying. Because for some people, God may do it over time, breaking down walls. You might see some evidence of God at work. Maybe you'll see them asking questions. But for other people, it'll come when you never expect it. And God will get a hold of them in that moment and you would have never seen it coming. Don't stop praying. Don't get discouraged that that God can't get a hold of that person. There is no one who is beyond the mercy of God. No one. And here's what I want to sum it up with for you this morning. God pursues us before we pursue him. You and I have a story, and if you've trusted in Christ, you think your story began there, but it did not. God pursued you long before you ever pursued him. He says about Saul, he's my chosen instrument. Later on in the book of Acts, and as Paul writes some letters, we're going to get more pieces to that story, but do you know that Paul, in one of his letters, he says, God chose me as his instrument before I was ever born. Before Paul, Saul, was ever born, God already had a plan for him. See, God, God didn't, wasn't sitting around waiting and looking for the right person to accomplish his task and his plan. And then one day, somehow Saul came about on his team because Saul understood the gospel and he chose to believe and then now he's part of God's team and he's looking for something to do and God says, oh, he would be a good one for this. God doesn't operate like that. No, God says, I've got a purpose and a plan and I'm going to do everything that needs to be done in order to get that plan and purpose done. My plan will not be thwarted. Paul was chosen long before he was ever born. He was being pursued by God long before Paul ever pursued God. You and I think our story started when we trusted in Christ. No, no, that's the middle of the story at least. God's been pursuing you long before you ever pursued him. And as you grow in your relationship with God and as you study the scriptures, part of what keeps stirring us up to worship God is to see how he had been working and to understand, wait a minute, God, you mean you were pursuing me when I was doing that? You you mean, God, when you sent Christ to die for sinners and you demonstrated your love for sinners, you did that while I was doing that and you knew I would do that? You mean, you mean, God, that you, you sent Christ to die for me and now you've adopted me into your family and you did that fully knowing everything that I did before? You mean you know about that night? You, you mean you know about how I treat it? You mean you know about that list? Yeah. And it didn't deter him in pursuing you. It didn't scare him away. There is no sin that you have in your life that will scare God away. There's no sin that you have in your life that is beyond the reach of God's grace and His mercy. No one in this room is beyond God's mercy. You have not sinned enough to reach that far. In fact, Paul would say in one other letter, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 16, he would say, look, here's a trustworthy statement. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And he says, I am the worst among them. We kind of have an idea of why he would say that. And then he would go on and he'd say, but here's the reason that Christ saved me. So that in me, I would be an example of God's patience for all those who would believe after me. One of the reasons that God got a hold of Saul's life is for you and for me. Because he's an example to us that God's patience, 
goes far beyond what you or I think or imagine. And if you're sitting here this morning going, nah, but not me, Paul said it. I'm the example. Have you killed Christians? Have you taken Christians out of their homes, separated them from their family, and imprisoned them? Have you gone that far? Probably not. And even if you have, Paul says, I'm the example that God's patience for those who will believe. But here's the key. God doesn't, doesn't save people because you're good. You're impressive. There's nothing about you or I that made God send Christ. We didn't persuade him or convince him to act on our behalf. Can't. He did it out of his own love, out of his own purpose, and out of his own plans. He sent Christ to die for sinners so that whoever would believe in Christ would not perish but have eternal life. He did it on our behalf. The life that you and I try to live but fail miserably at, Jesus lived on our behalf. The, the death that he died is the death that you and I deserve because of our sin. It keeps us from a relation with God and yet Christ took our place so that we would not have to have that. So that when we trust in Christ as our Savior, then we get what Christ earned. He took what we earned. There's this great exchange. Some of you this morning think you're beyond God's mercy and you're not. That gospel, the good news about God is that you're not beyond God's mercy because of Christ. And others of you this morning, man, you, you've trusted in Christ and, and here's what I would hope for you this morning, that this stirs your heart back up for Christ. That, that as you consider what God has done for Saul and how he's worked in your life, that he pursued you long before you were pursuing him. There's nothing that was good in us that convinced God to have us in his family. And if I was God, I wouldn't have picked me. Would you? If you were God and you were getting to pick people to be on your team, would you have picked yourself? I wouldn't have. That's why I'm, God, I'm glad God pursues us long before we ever pursue God. And so as we take a moment just to reflect, let's ask God, God, what do you have for me this morning? Some of you, maybe God's, God's saying to you that today, hey, I'm trying to get, get a hold of you this morning. You're not as far gone as you think you are. My mercy is available for you today. Consider Christ. For others of you this morning, maybe it's a reminder that God was pursuing me long before I pursued him. And even as I still struggle with sin as a follower of Christ, even as I treat people like I'm not supposed to treat people, even as I think things I'm not supposed to think and believe things I'm not supposed to believe and do things I'm not supposed to do, even as I do those things and I wrestle with those things, God knew all of that before he sent Christ to die for me. And he was pursuing me long before I ever pursued him. And he's not going to stop pursuing me. So let's go before the Lord this morning. Jesus paid the price for me Only His love could set me free Nobody else could open heaven's door Just Jesus and nothing more Only Jesus paid the price for me only his love could set me free nobody else could 
open heaven's door Just Jesus and nothing more Just Jesus and nothing more God, I'm so grateful this morning that you acted on our behalf long before we ever pursued you. That you weren't sitting around waiting for some of us to, to turn to you before you responded to us. We'd have no hope. We'd still be dead in our sins and our trespasses lost and enslaved to sin. And yet, God, because you are who you are and you're faithful to your promises that you've made and ultimately, God, you do what brings you glory because you are the highest in all of creation, above creation. There's no one greater. So God, the highest thing that any creative thing can do is to bring you glory. And the highest thing that you, God, can do is to bring you glory. So God, I'm so thankful that in acting on our behalf, by demonstrating your righteousness, your, your justice, your love, your grace, your mercy, all of that shines back on who you are. None of that do we deserve. We don't deserve to know you. We don't deserve to be in a relationship with you. We don't deserve to have the hope that you give us. And yet, God, you, you'd acted on our behalf. I'm so grateful for that. Some of you this morning, maybe you realize that for the first time, that God acted on your behalf. And what God has done for us through Christ, that's the gospel. And what God requires of us is to believe that to trust that, to stop trusting in whatever it is we're trusting and we repent. And in repenting, we are turning to something else. You stop trusting in what you're trusting and you turn away from it and you trust in Christ. His death on your behalf, His resurrection from the dead that gives us that same new life. Others of you this morning, maybe God's stirring up your heart. Pursue that. Let that, let that ground be made fertile once again. Don't, don't let yourself fall back into being hardened and crusty. Reducing down what God has done for you to just a mere set of facts. Instead, relive that. Be reminded of who you were. Paul says, I am the worst of sinners. He never forgot who he was. But he didn't live in that. He lived in the new life that Christ gave him. For some of you, that's where you need to be this morning. In just a moment, we're going to dismiss. And maybe you want prayer about something specific. Maybe you want somebody to pray with you. We're going to have some folks available across the room. They're there to pray with you. And so just go up to them, ask them, hey, I'd like some prayer about this. Or, hey, I've just trusted in Christ. I'd like to know more about this. Or, hey, um, I'd like to know more about what it looks like to trust in Christ. They'd be glad to visit with you, pray with you. And so if you're part of that prayer team, you can go ahead and make your way wherever you're going to be in the room. And so, Father, as we depart from here, let us be a people who are marked by your mercy. That we would not operate in our own pride, never forgetting, God, that you, you, God, had you not acted on our behalf, we would not be where we are. And so, God, let us be that same type of person that you are and go and act on the behalf of others. God, let us, let us go and carry this message of God's love for sinners. Let us go in and initiate those conversations and initiate those relationships, God, so that people would know that God's not sitting around waiting for you. He's pursuing you. And do that for the sake of your glory, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. With that, we'll see you guys next week.